Welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast. I'm Darren Leslie, and I'm a teacher. The mission of Becoming Educated is threefold. To inform, giving teachers the robust academic basis to really meaningfully interrogate practice. To challenge accepted thinking, dangerous assumptions, and the dead wood entire professional dialogue. And ultimately, to inspire and allow passionate professionals to trust in themselves and teach with joy. So in this podcast, I am joined by a professor in social mobility, a co-creator of the Education Endowment Foundation's Toolkit for Learning and Teaching, and the co-author of What Works in Secondary Education, Professor Lee Elliott Major. Lee, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Um, just to, to start, uh, could you share with, with myself and the listeners a little bit about yourself and your career to date? So I think an important part of my story is that I did drop out of school when I was uh, 15. And um, a lot of people are quite interested in that because I've ended up becoming an educationalist in many ways. Um, My mum and dad split up when I was 15. I lived on my own in London. And I always tell the story when I give talks, if you'd looked at me at age 15, living on my own, um, dropped out of school, then my prospects wouldn't have looked that good. Uh, but it really was teachers, to be honest with you, that that uh, got me back into school. And, and I'll always remember that because there, to be honest, wasn't many other people around at that point in my life. And so I've always been very passionate personally as well as professionally about the power of education. Although, as we might come on to, I think there are limits also to what education can do. And I think it's important for teachers to have realistic aspirations. I think sometimes we can overburden them with solving all society's ills. But certainly in my personal case, education was the the thing that transformed my life. So I went back to school. I ended up going to a sixth form sort of further education college and then went to to Sheffield University uh, and I'm proud to say I got an honorary doctorate from Sheffield a couple of years ago for services to social mobility which I'm very proud of Um, and so yeah I did a PhD in physics in theoretical physics Um, uh, so quite uh, sort of mathsy I I guess you'd say in terms of of my, my education but I always loved to write as well and that's really been a theme of my whole career I'm very interested in data evidence and research but my real skill is being how do you synthesize that how do you communicate that for practitioners i.e teachers so that they can improve the outcomes of disadvantaged pupils in particular and that's really been the theme of a lot of my career it's easier said than done to be honest with you and we might get into some of the nuances on that um, but yeah, so I um, I was formerly a journalist as well. So I've had a varied career. I was at the I was at the Guardian. I was on, on the Education Guardian. Some senior head teachers do still remember those days, but um, the days are, uh, 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 fewer teachers now do remember me that that long ago. I'm I'm 50 now, so it's uh, 51 even. Um, so. And then I, I guess the other things in my career that are, that are important to know, um, I was at the Sutton Trust Education Foundation. Um, I was chief executive there. And that uh, mission for the Sutton Trust, which is a, a UK-wide charity, is to improve social mobility through education. And I was also, I just stepped down as a trustee of the Education Endowment Foundation. And as you said, I, I was one of the, the co-authors of the uh, toolkit. In fact, when we first produced the toolkit, 
the EEF didn't even exist. It, it was a, it was called the Sutton Trust uh, Teaching and Learning Toolkit, and we used that toolkit in our bid to secure the money for the Education Endowment Foundation uh, from the, the then government. Uh, and that toolkit was really one of the, the I guess, the sort of uh, the proudest things that I've been part of. In that, I think, I think what the latest estimates are that two thirds of schools have use the toolkit in some way which is an amazing thing if you think about it um you know me and steve higgins my co-author produced that on a very small budget you know there was no government backing for it at the time we did it part-time on weekends and i you know day doesn't go past now without a young teacher sort of saying to me have you seen this online guide about what works in education i said oh yes i you know i do remember that i used to write that on sunday mornings sort of 10 years ago so i'm very proud of that and it's now been used in uh, other countries uh, south america australia um you know if i'd been a businessman and, and had charged one p for every copy downloaded i'd be a rich man now but of course i wasn't interested in in that at the time um so so that's my career really you know i i guess i dropped out of, of school but then went back went to university i was an education journalist and then um, the last uh, 10, 10 or so years involved in education um, foundations. And then the last year, as you say, I've become a um, uh, the first, we think, professor of social mm-hmm. mobility um, in the country, in the world, we think. Um, so very privileged and proud to have that role. Absolutely. So, University of Exeter. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, a very varied career, as you said, and, and a lot of you've had a, a bit of an influence in, in education because I, I know that in schools I've been at we've we've engaged in, in Scotland with the with the EF toolkit so I'd like to start with with social mobility um you all you've you've kind of spoken at a TED event about social mobility as well and, and you've mentioned that social mobility is low in the UK so in terms of education what can education and teachers do about social mobility so this is a really important question I think because education I think does an amazing job in ter- terms of counterbalancing the inequalities outside the school gates. And that book that um, I published a year ago called Social Mobility and Its Enemies, published by Penguin in all good bookshops, um, basically what we did there was we reviewed uh, a lot of research um, from across the world, actually. And what we found was that low social mobility, i.e., the, the, the lower the chances of climbing the social ladder, particularly if you're from a poor background, are inextricably linked with inequality, you know, uh, in a sense, how wide are the rungs of the ladder? And um, I think any serious politician, if they are serious about challenging, trying to um, address social mobility, you have to do something about inequality outside the school gates, as well as improving education. Um, so it's an important message that I, when I give lectures to trainee teachers or, or head teachers, you know, I always emphasize in my talks that while we can always improve what schools do, and I think there is huge uh, room for improvement, we can't solve everything. And I think there is a really dangerous rhetoric uh, among many governments, uh, certainly south of the border particularly, I think, 
where I feel that the burden is placed on teachers to solve everything. And, and, and in many ways, when I visit schools, I see them doing so much now in terms of what I would classify as social welfare. And while I completely understand why they're doing that, and it has some impact on children in terms of helping them, like feeding them, for example, um, I do worry that that doesn't enable schools to have enough time to do what they're really good at, which is the classroom teaching. Uh, and and, I, and I, just, I just worry that, you know, we, we currently have a political uh, regime in which uh, essentially we're saying we're happy with inequality, but we're not going to give schools enough resources to counterbalance that completely. So I think it's tough. So, so social mobility is low and education can do wonders, can be transformative, but it can't solve everything. No, I... Certainly, and I think when you start that, we, we do a lot in, in our school and we offer breakfast clubs and, and free school meals, but free school meals aren't always taken up because of the stigma around that. But as you say, schools can uh, will continue to offer that, but we need to remember what we do best in terms of our learning and teaching. So I first um, got in contact with you after reading What Works that you co-authored with Steve Higgins. Could you, could you share how you came to write that book? So the What Works book is something we'd wished we'd done when we when we launched the toolkit um, what, eight, nine years ago now. But what What Works does, it, it tries to summarize the evidence for teachers in a very accessible way. And we look at a number of approaches from, you know, effective feedback in the classroom to one to one tutoring to uh, sports and art in, in, in schools. And, and we try and synthesize the evidence in, in in a way that will give tips, if you like, best bets for teachers to think about how what they do in, in, in schools and in the classroom. There's a couple of important messages in the book. I think one of them is that, you know, while evidence is incredibly important, and, and I think it's been amazing what's happened over the last 10 years in, in, in education, you know, teachers talk about evidence in a way they didn't perhaps 10, 10 years ago. But evidence can't solve all the issues. So what, what there, there is a big caveat with all the things we say in the book, which is, you know, the context of your classroom really matters as well. So here, here are some, you know, interesting, good bets that the evidence suggests on average will work or won't work. But you've got to trial it in your own school or classroom to see if it works for you. And, and the reason I say that is because I, I think the evidence-informed movement, one of the dangers has been that it can be almost exploited by uh, governments uh, in, in, in telling teachers what to do. You know, here is the evidence and we're going to tell you to do X, Y, and Z. The book is really about trying to empower teachers as professionals to give them the evidence to make the choices that, that are best for them. Mm -hmm. And you said, you said about kind of trying what's best for you and you raise a good point in your book in what you call your Bananarama principle. Uh, could you share what that is and, and why it's so important? So the Banana Rama principle uh, is, you know, it's not what you do, it's the way you do it that counts. Uh, and it's, it relates to the Banana Rama uh, hit in the 1980s. Sometimes I now when I give presentations to teachers, they're so young they don't get the 1980s cultural reference. But it's something that Steve Higgins came up with and it's a very catchy uh, sort of uh, wording for this and, and but it's very important it's a very serious point because what we found in the talk and in the book 
is that there's a bigger variation between each approach than between approaches. So for example, effective feedback in the classroom, which I've become obsessed with because it, it can have a huge impact on learning. But the big but is it can also be done badly and it actually can have negative um, uh, you know, impact on on children. So it's how you do the feedback that's crucial. And when I observe classrooms, um, you know, you see even the best teachers uh, aren't able to give targeted, timely feedback to every child in the class. I think it's one of the big challenges of teaching, actually. And I, I'd love to do more on it in, in terms of research with teachers on, on, on that area. So, so that's one example. Another example. Um, is teaching assistance, you know, so we found in the, in, the, in the original toolkit that teaching assistants had on average zero impact on the attainment of children they worked with. Now, what we weren't saying with that was sack all your TAs. What we were saying was it actually is how that TA is prepared, managed, and, and, and really you should treat them as secondary educators. So again, it's how the TA is utilized um, rather than whether you have a TA or not. Now, this all sounds very simplistic, but I can assure you that we all uh, suffer from not doing things as well as we, we, we might want to do them. And that's partly because we've got only a fixed amount of time in the school day. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many times I go to school and they all say they're doing effective feedback but what we underestimate, I think, is the time needed, and this is another theme of the book, the time needed for teachers to prepare uh, for an approach to do it and then to reflect on it with colleagues and to then improve it, a sort of feedback cycle, if you like, for, for professional development. And what I find in British schools particularly is that we just don't have the time to do this. So, so beneath that sort of banana oil principle, I think are some very serious issues around how do we best use time for teachers. And I would advocate that we use less time in front of pupils. It, 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 there's all sorts of practical issues about how you do that. But my view is you, you want more time for learning among teachers and then you would get more uh, impact on pupils, even though you'd have less time with pupils, mm. if that makes sense. No, it's very, very interesting one because in a, in a recent article on TESS, the OECD re released a report in, I think it was April 2019, Educating at a Glance, it actually found that Scottish teachers have the highest contact time amongst the developed world, which is a very interesting point because we've spoken about how can we, how can you get teachers together more. And I'm going to come back to, to both your, your thoughts on feedback and teaching assistance because that's two, two bits that have came out for me because... Um, we find, especially in our school, that we, sometimes our teaching assistants are used to help with behaviour rather than to to impact on a child's learning. But before that, could you t think about your research? What has had the or what has the biggest impact on learning? So we know teaching matters more than anything else. The problem is that it's very hard to actually identify and agree upon what great teaching looks like. So I, I've been in, involved in other reports. We did a report called What Makes Great Teaching a few years ago. And we found that even the most experienced teacher observers will disagree about whether they have observed a great lesson or a great teacher doing that lesson. So one of the things that the research suggests is that 
teaching is complex and it's it, some people say it's the most complex interaction humans can have because you've got you know 30 pupils in a class with all these uh, thinking going on in in their minds uh, one one fact that i always um present to trainee teachers which always gets a, a, a sort of laugh is, is is a fact from the great graham nuttall research who's um uh, book um is one of the greats he 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 was a New Zealand researcher, but he did a lifetime's um, work basically recording and interviewing pupils in uh, in classes. And one of the facts that came out was that pupils spend 80% of their time pretending to listen, which is always a sort of, you know, quite a... And I, whenever I give lectures, I always start with this because I say, I'm, I'm watching you all now because I know that some of you will, will be pretending to listen. Um, and that for me is important because it's sort of, you know, we can, we can see people, we can see, but learning, and you know, a lot of people talk about l- trying to make learning visible and I can understand what they're trying to say, but a lot of learning of course is in the mind. It's hard to know when learning has ha- actually happened. So the, the research suggests that it's very complex and it's also, there's limited programs to be frank that we know are proven in in how to improve teaching. So we know it matters, but there is limited research, and I would love to get involved more with with research projects in this field, is how do you actually go about improving it? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a great, great one to, to think about because we're talking about just now in, in my context about what actually makes great teaching and, and the, 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 the breadth of views and... Um, conclusions is 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 far and far wide and varied so it's very interesting you mention that can i go back to to what i thought on your book in each chapter you offer an unexpected finding and you've already alluded to about the fact that feedback can actually make things worse for students um what should teachers focus on when providing feedback to make sure that it is effective Wow, uh, that'd be a whole whole podcast in itself, I think, uh, Darren. Um, I mean, I, I think the what what the, the evidence suggests on feedback. There's many elements in this. I think it's about, it's, it's, in most simplistic terms, it's about how do you move learning on, and so it's it's about getting feedback from the pupils so that you know where they are in their learning, and then giving them some feedback that enables them to make the next steps and then uh, uh, clarifying the goals for for those uh, children again that all sounds quite simple but it's hard to do in practice for many pupils in in you know in a class so so a lot of the the issues around marking uh, that have arisen um in recent years where we've had this increase in marking uh, sort of the workload issues was partly driven by our talk and us saying we need more feedback but quite bizarrely in some ways that feedback uh what was sort of was interpreted as oh we need we need to give children more marks or more more feedback through written uh, marking what that in a way was was because i think there's all sorts of issues with that i think marking is only good when it provides feedback for pupils so when when it addresses a major misconception for example um often marking is about 
attending to the needs of parents, you know, to be seen to be doing stuff. And a lot of the time it isn't actually about feedback. But but I think one of the issues around marking is, for me, it detracts around the central issue, which is providing feedback in real time in the classroom. And, you know, I, I, th- I think it's just, you know, it's about being very targeted, being very precise in your language. Often when you observe teachers, and listen, I do this as well, by the way, you, you, it, it's sort of more of the same rather than how do... You, you enable that learner to be stretched to um, a slightly higher level. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's been stuff written about proximal zones of learning. You know, you want the, 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 the skill is, you know, giving enough stretch so that they are interested and they are stretched, but not too much stretch that they are doomed to failure, you know, and, um, you know, I was thinking this because I play dad's football every week still and I'm getting old. We're all getting older. And we were just saying because we're all aging at the same rate, it's still fairly competitive. But when one of our sons comes to play with us, they're so fast and strong that it's quite demoralizing, actually, because, you know, five years ago, you could just about catch them up and, and hold them. Now you've got no chance. And I think for, for, for learners in the classroom, you know, if you're being given um, feedback that is too stretching, it can actually be very emotionally draining. And and there's some really interesting research about the um, the sort of channels of cognitive response and emotional response. And often, um, if if you if if children go through, you know, learning is about emotion as well as cognition, by the way. But but often you know, children will be worried about saying something in the class because they're scared that they will be, they will look stupid if they get it wrong. And there's loads of research about the best teachers are the ones that enable, and this is hard, by the way, uh, an environment, a culture where mistakes are kind of mm-hmm. okay and, and that there is, um, you know, that that is discussed in class. I, I think, and one final thing on feedback, you know, my having observed it my view is that it's the poorer kids who miss out because they're the ones who are less likely to come forward and tell the teacher where they are so quite often you'll see a teacher do a wonderful exposition or modeling at the beginning of the class and then seek some you know have the children understood but the two or three pupils will will report back and that will be taken as a signal that the class has kind of understood the reality, of course, is that a lot of the more disadvantaged people are sitting at the back pretending to listen, nodding their heads. Um, so I quite like peer uh, tutoring, peer learning, which I know a lot of classrooms now have. Um, and I think the teachers have got to focus on where are the misconceptions and just keep driving hard on that. It's very easy. And I speak as someone who has to teach as well. It's because it's it, it's a very emotionally uh, draining um, thing to do, stand up and to, you know, to try and inspire with all your energy <laughs> um, learning. Um, I think you've just got to be very humble in, in your attitude to, to, to realize that probably uh, there are still major mis- misconceptions in the class about a lot of what you've said. So um, the the initial modeling or exposition, I think, is really just stage one. Uh, and, and you've got to consolidate that with feedback. But 
but listen, they, those are just a few things. I, 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 you know, you get into what good teaching is about with effective feedback, effectively. But anyway, um, I'll move on to to talk about um, homework, and you found that homework has a low impact on learning for primary pupils. Could you tell me why that is? So homework is an inherently risky strategy because there's no teacher present at the time of, of, of the learning. And a lot of surveys suggest that teaching, oh, sorry, a lot of surveys suggest that cheating is um, rife in, in that. And what do I mean by cheating? I mean parents uh, doing the homework or getting their children to complete the homework in a way that's quite rushed and, and, and actually doesn't probably does more damage to be frank than, than, than help. What we know uh, from homework is that it should be used to either consolidate something that's been done in class the day before or that day um, or to prepare for the lesson coming up. Often, because teachers are so busy, they come up with homework that isn't actually directly connected to the lessons that they're, that they're teaching. It has very limited use. We, what, we, what the research suggests is that it, it, is, it, it is not very impactful at all on average in primary schools. We, we think that's because it's, 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 it's um, yeah, the parents are probably helping more in terms of their children. And also, it, it doesn't necessarily, there's a lot of examples in primary schools of homework that's sort of nice to do sort of homework that actually doesn't improve um, learning. Whereas at secondary school, uh, it's much more targeted, it's much more subject focused. And um, it tends to do that thing that I was talking about earlier, which is consolidating lessons more. So it, it's the type of feedback uh, that comes through from, from that homework. Uh, the, there's a really interesting uh, bit of American research that suggests also diminishing returns from homework, um, certainly when you're younger. So um, you know, some experts suggest it shouldn't be more than 10 minutes per year group. So someone in year one, you should never have more than 10 minutes. And once you get to year 12, you're talking about two hours a night. The issue with secondary schools is uh, coordinating each department's uh, homework. And, and as a father, I can tell you that often you, you'll get several uh, departments all giving homework on the same night. What we know is there's diminishing returns because as all teachers know, you know, more than two hours work, you're going to have very little return after that. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, so what do you think the keys then? You talk about secondary schools and uh, setting at the same time. What do you think are the keys to setting effective homework in a secondary school? Because we've spoken about there that kind of low returns in primary school, but in secondary school, there is still a bit of a value placed on edu on setting homework. One thing I would say, I, th I really believe that less is more with homework. That you that there is a tendency with the the exam pressures and, and the pressures on the schools to um, perform um, that we give children more and more work to do. And and what's interesting actually is there's also a phenomenon of private tutoring outside state schools that's going on um so there's been a boom um across britain um from from uh, over the last 15 years so we know that about 20 25 percent of 11 to 16 year olds now do some sort of private tutoring outside school so in general i'm worried actually about the amount of stuff that's going on outside schools you know because i i worry about 
childhood more generally that you, you shouldn't you know while i'm passionate about learning i do think children should be freed up to do other things as well so my my view is less is more it has to be targeted and and i think it you know it either you do it to help prepare for the next lesson so you're giving some sort of content that enables you then to get more quickly into feedback actually in the lesson afterwards so sometimes seeing if 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 you can provide some initial content or consolidate learning after that lesson is, is done. I think to those two things can be helpful. The other thing I worry about with homework is that it, it, it exacerbates the social divide as well. You know, that um, it tends to be the children from better off homes who will do the homework. Certainly the schools that I've been involved in as a governor and, and a visitor you know, you look at homework and it, and it really, it's always bleak because the children that need it the most uh, are the ones that aren't doing it that much. So I, I think as a school, you've got to think about that. There are some schools who have stopped doing homework. I'd like to come on to the idea of, of setting classes because a, a lot of subjects, specifically... Um, kind of your more attainment driven subjects still mm. set classes according to the prior level of attainment uh, you mm. you call it in your book education zero sum game mm. could you share what you found regarding setting classes so what you find with the evidence on setting versus mixed ability that the gains that you get from setting uh, for the um, higher sets so for the children that get into the higher sets they do actually gain I think it's about a couple of months more in development per academic year but those gains are offset by big losses of those in the bottom set so and they tend to be the disadvantaged young people pupils who are in those bottom sets um, now setting if done well can can be okay as far as equity goes but you need to be very careful you need to have flexibility between groupings and what I find when I visit schools is that those groupings become quite fixed because people conceive of those perceive those children to to be of a certain ability and others uh, as, as lower ability we also find that teachers underestimate the heterogeneity in sets so actually when you look at the evidence even when you're in the same set there's a huge range of uh, capability i'd call it or achievement um so on 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 the on the whole, we would we would argue that uh, mixed ability uh, classes is probably more effective on, on balance, as long as you differentiate when when you, when you have those classes, and um, you know again it's like the Bananarama principle here. It's not whether you set or not; it's how you do it. But we think that on average, it's a safer bet, particularly for disadvantaged pupils, to 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 have mixed ability uh, classes. And by the way, that applies to maths as well as English. Um, I, I was always I always thought the maths was different. And whenever I uh, visit schools, I, I I'm always naughty because I always say, okay, why do you set in maths and not in English? And it's, and it's really interesting hearing teachers' responses. It's usually that we've always done it this way. There are experts in maths that will tell you that you, you, there's no need to set in maths either. So I always thought that that might be a, a special subject where you have to set. Again, it, for me, it's about the quality of the teaching. And there are teachers who can differentiate within a mixed ability setting um, and, and you see amazing results. So um, 
what's interesting is that the gifted and talented programs that that were um, developed certainly in this country uh, in the nineties, you know, where you took the very um, high achievers, they had quite good impact on the children. But we think that's because that they changed the nature of the teaching uh, for those young pupils. There was something done differently for those pupils. Um, so, but but uh, but on the whole, I think we would argue for mixed ability. And and also in in the in the book, what works in each chapter, you offer a leadership tip, and this is something that really fascinated me because it's something we discuss quite a lot in our school. And the leadership tip for that for academic setting was to assign the most effective teacher with the lowest set. And we call this our wicked issue because due to attainment being a, a key indicator for for schools, uh, we often put our most effective teachers with our senior classes to try and achieve the best grades. And which can sometimes, dare I say it, leave our least effective teachers with the lowest sets. What do you say to that? Yeah, it it, it, it it's a real dilemma many schools face. And, um, you know, it, it, listen, it depends what you want. Um, and we are coming from a perspective which says, let you know i i I mean the more i've thought about education the more i I guess i think in terms of equity rather than equality what do i mean by that i mean for me equity is giving more resource to the children that need it the most and uh, so you know i i think you you can try and balance this out balance this out to some extent in that some teachers should the, the better teachers however you're defining that i'd be, int- I'd be interested to know how you're defining that actually um I think you should at least have some time with those those lowest achievers um, for the for the best teachers, um, you know. And I, and I just think that you have to make that choice. Um, what we don't know, of course, is um, you know those higher achieving sets would they still do okay anyway um, uh, with, with with other teachers? We just don't know that because you've obviously always done it that way, right? You don't, I guess you know, but it, it's it's sort of what is your um, view, I guess, on what the school is about? Is it about, you know, trying to improve the outcomes of all children or is it about, you know, improving a, a subgroup of, of high achievers? I mean, there's a bigger issue for social mobility is how do you get the, the best teachers, in inverted commas, to go to the areas, the schools that need them the most? And actually one of the biggest issues we have is that the poorest areas around Britain ha- are, are least likely to have the teachers that 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 are are perceived to be good, you know, and, and that how do you incentivise teachers to go to areas um, often in in rural areas, often on the coast, but that that's a big social mobility issue. No, definitely, it's definitely an issue uh, issue up in Scotland getting getting teachers out to the coastal towns and. We famously had a, a school in, in Edinburgh that, that didn't have any math, math teachers and appealed to the parent body to who can help with this. So there is definitely yeah. a, a discussion to be had on, on teacher retention and then also, and as you say, getting the best teachers out to the schools that, that need them the most. So I've got three final questions that I'm going to ask everyone that, that comes on the podcast just to quickly give me give me their, their answers for if, if you'd be up for that. Yeah, of course. Um, so my first one is, um, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your career? 
So that's a really good question. Um, I think Graham Nuttall, The Hidden Lives of Learners, the reason I say that is because it really opened my eyes to the power of classroom teaching, but also the challenges and complexity of learning. I would recommend that to uh, any teacher. Brilliant, thank you. Um, if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? One bit of advice. You know, so, so in my talks, in a way, the two the two bits really. One is have realistic aspirations about what you can achieve. Aspire high, but don't be burdened by expectations that you can solve everything. And the final one is is something that really interests me. I think that there's a lot of things that just get in the way of classroom teachers getting to do what they what they enter the profession for and that's just teach children and to the best they can so what what do you think like most gets in the way of of teaching yeah it's a really good question do you know i think it's the it's the lack of professional collaborative learning for teachers by teachers and that that's what I, that's what I was talking about you earlier you know I think there needs to be more time more resource for teachers to learn throughout their careers it's one of the one of the great ironies of the profession is we actually spend little time learning ourselves even though we are professional teachers uh, and I think you know that probably means less contact time it probably means less time on on some of the bureaucratic end of things, the the number crunching, the the marking, the um, all the things that teachers do that get in the way of classroom teaching. But personally, I would I would try and carve out more time in the school week for for effective professional learning. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. If you want to find out more about what was discussed today, please head over to my website, becomingeducated.co.uk. And finally, if you haven't done so already, I would really love it if you were to subscribe to the podcast. That way, all future episodes will be downloaded directly into your feed. And before you go, please always remember to teach with joy.